we're glad that you've joined us. We hope that you're doing well, and we're very glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And today we'd like to discuss a, a subject that is features prominently in a lot of discussions of doctrine, and that is the grace of God. Now, God's grace, uh, the word grace comes from the Greek haris, which means unmerited favor in that very popular shorthand definition. A fuller definition of it is its graciousness of manner or act, and it's something that's acceptable, a benefit or a gift. And it's very easy to look at grace as something uh, being given that is not deserved. And so when people discuss God's grace, it's very easy to talk about it in terms of faith, obedience, and works. It's very easy to make an antagonist the role of a grace-only perspective. That seems to eliminate man's role in his salvation, or to justify that which is against God's revealed standard on account of grace. The idea is that such an overemphasis on uh, such a such a magnification of God's grace, which is a great thing to do, but so as to act as if man has no role, which is not what you see in the New Testament, or also very easily using grace's license. Well, uh, we don't need to be concerned as much about some of these particular specificities in Scripture, because God's grace will cover us all. And so, when that kind of view is out there, either. In reality, which many times it is, or sometimes just as kind of the imagined antagonist or opponent, uh, there's a robust understanding of obedient faith offered uh, as an alternative. Uh, where God's grace remains important, but it needs to be accepted by faith in the follow-up to the Lord Jesus. After all, it's the very same Paul who, in Romans chapter 3, Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, sets out the ideas so powerfully used to demonstrate justification by faith and things of that sort. In Romans 1.5, the same letter, Paul says that the, his, work, his purpose is unto the obedience of faith of, all nation, of the nations. And in chapter 6, 14-23, when Paul talks about being under grace, it means that you've become obedient to the standard of teaching to which you've been committed. So Paul certainly does not see uh, grace and faith as antithetical to obedience. He sees that they all work together. And it's important for us to understand that grace is not a denial of man's need to accept God in Christ. It's not an excuse to sin. And it works in concert with man trusting in God because of the grace that God has expressed to mankind. And that trust must be made evident in obedience. But when we talk about grace that way, it's very easy however intentionally and unintentionally it is, to turn grace into a doctrinal precept. So that grace, especially as the way that God's grace has been displayed in Jesus, becomes a tentative doctrine to affirm. How it works with faith and obedience becomes a matter of dispute and discussion that generally maintains a very academic nature. Uh, when you look at that those ways, grace is kind of left disconnected with life and continued faith. And it, in its most extreme form, can turn grace into a 2,000-year-old relic. That See, this is what God did for us in Jesus here. Uh, that's, that's where grace was displayed. And now go on with your lives. But in the New Testament, that's definitely not the way grace from God is understood. It wasn't just a matter of doctrine. It wasn't just something to discuss. It was something to be experienced. 
and it was supposed to be something that was a transformative catalyst in the life of the believer. And we see this in passages like 2 Corinthians 8, 6 through 10, 9, 8, Ephesians 4, 7, Hebrews 4, 16, and 1 Peter 4, 10. And we'll be exploring these in greater detail as we continue. We see in these passages and many others that God's grace in Christ was not a one-time thing that was ended when Jesus ascended, but instead is something that was continually experienced and that transformed the life of early Christians. It's very important for us to keep in mind that there's nothing in Scripture that gives us this indication or suggestion that somehow God's grace was only for those in the first century. That know that God's grace was something continually to be expected uh, throughout the generations as long as people called upon the name of His Son. And so therefore, let's look at what the New Testament talks about in terms of grace and life. And to begin with, let's go back to that understanding of, of how we receive grace from God through Jesus and to see um, how, how that that is not just an idea to affirm is true, but that because God's grace has been displayed in Christ, that leads to an expectation that certain other things are going to follow. We see this explanation of the act of grace seen in Romans 1 through 5, Ephesians 2, Titus 3 through 8, and 1 John 4 7 through 21. And there are these fundamental aspects to the idea of how God has shown his grace through Jesus. That God did through Jesus what we ourselves could not do. And that what the law of Moses or any standard of law could not do. Provide atonement for sin. And to overcome sin and death. We see that in Romans 3 and Romans 8. That we have a sin problem as human beings. That we could not atone or fix for ourselves. We couldn't make, make it better uh, by our own behavior. And because of our sin problem, we were justly condemned as transgressors against the standard of God. Because of that sin, we deserve separation from God and condemnation. But instead, in Jesus, God loved us, did not give us the condemnation that we deserved, which is his mercy, but gave us what was not deserved, his grace, when he gave his son for uh, our life, that he gave his life that we could live. All of these things we see in Ephesians 2, Titus 3, many of the parts of Scripture. These are doctrinal truths that we confess and ought to confess, just as they are explained in Scripture. But just because they are doctrinal truths that we agree to, doesn't mean that we look at Jesus died for our sins, and that is how God has shown us grace, as 2 plus 2 equals 4. As some kind of true, factual statement that does not seem to have a lot of consequences uh, for our lives or should not lead to some kind of transformation because there are many implications for the lives we live because of God's grace being displayed for us in Christ. And we look at this and we see the fact of grace and, and what that's supposed to mean for us. For instance, one fact of grace is our sin problem. That in Scripture we are all sinners. And therefore we are corrupted in our thoughts, our feelings, and our actions. In Romans 3.23, Ephesians 2.1-3, and Titus 3.3. That in Isaiah 59.2, we are separated from God because of our iniquities. Because we have fallen short of His glory. And in Romans 3.20, that no one will be justified by works of the law. And therefore in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. We cannot atone for that. Uh, that we are weak in the flesh and only... Uh, that we ourselves could not fix our problem in Romans 8.1-3. So because of this, we can see, hopefully, that humanity is not really good 
as so many today want to say that humans are good, but that they were created good but corrupted by sin. Now, does this mean that they are depraved as Hobbes, as a Hobbesian world, life nasty, brutish, and short? Not necessarily, but it's definitely not the near angels uh, that people seem to make themselves out to be today. Uh, generally good people uh, who just have a few flaws. That's definitely not the Bible's perspective. But instead, we can see from this fact of grace and from reality, that human progress, so-called, will never truly succeed. That human institutions and quote-unquote advancements and systems cannot be fully trusted. They all suffer the corruption of sin and tend to look a lot like that Tower of Babel that God uh, dissuaded them from making by separating languages in Genesis 11. We'll see this in Romans chapter 8 as well. Just because everything suffers the corruption of sin. And that's why we cannot fully trust ourselves, that our minds, our feelings, and actions are, have suffered because of the corruption of sin, and that even in Christ we are often tempted to justify or commend ourselves in the way we think, even though they're not consistent with what God has revealed. Furthermore, because we find ourselves in the sin problem, we should expect fully that our fellow man is going to sin and to live in sin because he or she is a sinner. In Romans 3.23, and sinners sin. And... Likewise, since sinners sin, and many times sinners, even if they don't necessarily like sin, don't want uh, the, the, their sin pointed out, we shouldn't be surprised when people who advance righteousness, uh, they look down on insult, degrade, uh, just as Peter expected in 1 Peter 4, 3-4, and 12-19. through 19. So, all of these are facts that are true that we see in our world because of the first statement of grace, which is the demonstration of our own failings. Then our next faith fact of grace is therefore our unworthiness of grace. Because a grace is an unmerited favor. Unmerited is should be kind of underscored here. Because grace is a gift. And that's exactly why at least in part, in, in Ephesians 2, 1-3, through 3, and Titus 3, 3, before Paul gets into describing how God has expressed grace in Jesus, he talks about their lives of sin in very ugly ways. He wants them to sit and stew for just that half second in what they had done, in what they had wrought, so that just just so they could see uh, their condition, which is something that we like to rationalize away. We're not very happy with, and so it's very easy to, to try to ignore that. But this is what Paul says. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." Likewise, in Titus chapter 3, and verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In Romans 5, 6 through 11, all the time Paul's underscoring that what God has done is great, but it's while we were weak, while we were sinners, while we were enemies. Now, even if we could claim righteousness to some degree, we would still never deserve God's grace and would remain unworthy. But there's there's a very important reason why they keep underscoring this. is because God has rescued us from a pit we did not deserve to be rescued out of. And that was ugly. And it was dirty. And we didn't deserve it. And so that lack of worthiness has a lot of implications for how we... Uh, 
consider ourselves, our perspective, and our disposition toward others. Because we do well that to remember that God has given us grace. God has given us a gift. We didn't deserve it. And because of our sin problem, we were without hope, without God, without a nation, without anything of any value in Ephesians 2, 11 through 12, without God's grace. And so since God gave his grace without us deserving it in any way, we do not have any right to presume before God that we deserve or are entitled to anything. Very easy to do that in prayer, especially. To get to a point in the familiarity, in the prayer routine, to just start acting like an entitled child, that you just, God's just going to do things for you because, you know, well, you're a child of God, and, well, acting as if God is somehow indebted to you, or God is somehow going to be, that you can somehow compel God to do something. No. That instead, as we see in Ephesians 1 and 1 Corinthians 14, that we should approach God always with humility and thanksgiving, always recognizing that we are dependent upon Him and of our unworthiness before Him. And that is why our dependence upon Him is the way we're supposed to live. That we need to be dependent on God and not ourselves. That we do not baptize our own views or sanctify our own views. That instead we are consciously relying upon God and His Word and His standard and to put our trust and faith in Him on a daily basis because we haven't found salvation through our own ideas and our own efforts. We've only found salvation in Christ and what He has done for us. And God has proven faithful and has earned that trust to follow after Him. And this, of course, changes the way we should look at other people. It's very easy to act as if we are better than other people. We're, in fact, always, as human beings, naturally in the flesh, trying to figure out how we are better than others to justify why we should be treated better. And that we should enjoy uh, more pleasures or have more benefits than other people. Yet, the idea of God's grace completely devastates this. Because according to God's grace, that we're all unworthy. That we all don't deserve it. And since we all don't deserve it, that doesn't mean that any of us are any better than anybody else. That none of us are more entitled than anybody else. And therefore, being in Christ is not some kind of thing that we can use to act as if we're better than those who are not in Christ. Instead, we must remember that by the grace of God, we would be in the condition that those in the world around us are in. And that, likely, if we were in their situation, we'd be making the same bad decisions, as can be seen in the, 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 the uh, degeneration in Romans chapter 1, 16-32. And... Therefore, we should have compassion on our fellow man and want to guide him toward salvation in Christ, uh, sharing what we've enjoyed in 2 Corinthians 5.11, Matthew 9.11-13. And fundamentally, grace is supposed to be seen as a model. That God has displayed and demonstrated grace through Christ, but that is a display that we're supposed to emulate. And we see this working in two ways. In Luke 6 and verse 31... Uh, Jesus provides what is often cited as the golden rule. And the golden rule is, as you would have others... Uh, <clears throat> Luke 6, and in verse 31, excuse me. If you, uh, if, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. And... So God wants us to do unto others as we would have them do to to us. So how are we going to do that? Well, why should we love other people when they are unlovable? Well, because that's how God loved us. Where would we be without it? In Romans 5, 6, 11. Why should we be merciful? 
Well, we should be merciful because our Heavenly Father is merciful and showed us mercy. When all other reasons for humanitarianism fail, when humanitarianism is any general noble impulse to help those who are in uh, difficult positions, every other motivation will ultimately fail, but this one can remain. That God's grace has been displayed to us in Christ unto our justification. So therefore, just as God has loved us when we were unlovable, just as God gave us something we did not deserve, therefore we can never turn to our fellow man and say, you don't get this because you don't deserve it. You don't get this because you're unlovable. That's not the way that the Christian is supposed to turn and and to approach his fellow man. Instead, we are to ask the question, what would we like people to do for us or to us? And to do so to them. And the things we want people to do is we want them to be forgiving of our shortcomings, to show us grace and mercy, and that's why we are to show grace and mercy to others. Likewise, in Second Corinthians chapter 8, one of the passages we mentioned where uh, we have grace discussed, in Second Corinthians 8, 6-10, Paul says the following to the Corinthians, Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." So, he's trying to encourage these Corinthians to, to be diligent in this collecting that they're doing for the needs of the needy saints in Jerusalem. Uh, that he's talking very highly of how the Macedonians have given even beyond their means. Uh, and as he's giving them this ex- very explicit and very fleshed out idea of why they should be doing this, we can call it a guilt trip, but it, it's, it's certainly part of it. He reminds them, uh, of what God has done for them in Christ. That in fact he says that if they've abounded in all these other aspects of the faith, faith and love and things, that they should abound in this act of grace. It's a gift. And he said that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that even though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Going back to Jesus' own idea in Matthew chapter 20, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That since God has given so much to us, that we should give to others. As God has given grace liberally in Christ, that's why Christians are to give liberally as they have opportunity, Galatians 2, 10, 6, 10, and to visit widows and orphans of distress in James 1, 27. So God's grace in Christ is not some kind of just academic uh, discussion not just some thing to confess, stand up and say you believe in it, and then keep walking. That instead it needs to be something that's utterly transformative. That we completely reconsider who we are, how we stand before God, how we stand before our fellow man, how we're to treat our fellow man, all because of the truth of God's grace as displayed in Christ. And that demands our personal transformation to be more like the Son in Romans 8 and 29.
so that we can see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 6-10, through 10, that grace is not something that only connects God's believers. That in fact, when we talk about grace and God's grace, that in fact, grace is supposed to be something seen in the life of a believer. That grace is not just this one thing that God gave us in Christ that he accomplished long ago. That instead it's something that is a continual reality. And this was certainly something that was expected by the authors of the New Testament. Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8, Paul says that God is able to make all the grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Likewise, in Hebrews chapter 4 and in verse 16. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here we see in these passages that we can go to God to get grace. This is not a, well, now I've given you your, my son, that's your grace. They know this is a thing we can constantly come before his throne of grace. Interesting, that's the way the Hebrew author decides to talk about the, 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 the position of God's authority uh, is, is full of grace, full of a gift. And the reason why God gives us that grace is so we can abound, so we can do every good work. But the question is how and to what end? How does this work? Well, uh, there's one way in Scripture where we know very explicitly this is how God uh, gives grace. And we see this in 1 Peter chapter 4 and in verse 10. 1 Peter 4 and verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that everything, in everything may God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. In belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, God gives gifts. Those gifts can be talents, resources, and opportunities. Peter explicitly identified speaking and ministering as gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul will have an extended discussion about spiritual gifts, many of them involving the dispensation of the Spirit in the first century, relating to the confirmation and promotion of the gospel before the completion of the Revelation in the New Testament. Uh, but nevertheless, still discusses how uh, the church is as a body, where each individual part works independently and interdependently to encourage the whole. And so the idea is that God has given all of us talents and resources and opportunities and that we are to use them for His glory and His service. So these need not be, quote-unquote, supernaturally powered. Instead, we know that we're all different people. And some people are just better at some things than other people. And that's not something to become arrogant about or something to become uh, depressed about. Instead, this is not a mark of arrogance or pride, uh, because we must remember that it's from the grace of God. And remember, by the grace of God, all the gifts in the world mean nothing if we do not have that opportunity of reconciliation in Christ. Instead, as Peter declares, there to be used for service. That Jesus came to serve us. God had given him how many gifts to come to serve us. We are then to take the gifts God has given us to serve others. And what we have from God is to be used to that end for His glory. 
That is why Jesus offers himself up in Matthew 20, 25 through 28 as a model. That they, they, the, the, his disciples know how the Gentiles lord over authority. But notice him. That he came not to be served, but to serve you as I for so many. That's why he says, that the one who be greatest among you uh, must be your servant. Or your slave. Because that's the mark of greatness in the kingdom of God. And therefore, whatever skills we have, we are to use them to serve God's people and others for God's glory. So that means if we are we have money, we are to use that money to, to, to give to the people of God and others for God's glory and to advance His purposes. If opportunities... Uh, Likewise, we have opportunities to advance God's purposes. If we find ourselves uh, making a friend of somebody who is interested in the gospel, we just happen to be, it just seems like we're in the right place at the right time with certain people in our lives. We need to see that as an opportunity from God. Wherever we find ourselves, we need to see how that could be an opportunity to accomplish His purposes. And we need to take that and to do it. And all of us have these opportunities. All of us have these resources. All All of us have these skills. They may be different, but they're there, and they're there to be harnessed for God's purposes to His glory. Can we know for certain how God provides gifts? No. We, we cannot know how God provides gifts in many ways. And that's what makes it so difficult to talk about in many ways. Because we want, we want very clear, easy, black-white answers. This is how God gives gifts in this way, this way, this way, this way. This is how God bestows grace upon us in this way, this way, this way, and this way. Uh, but that's not the way that it works. We're told he does allow grace to abound, and he's going to have grace abound in the ways that he thinks is best. Um, We can see certain passages where he gets some idea. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, we get the idea that believers may share in Christ's suffering, but they will also share in the comfort that comes from God. And that that comfort will come from God directly and also from one another. In Ephesians three fourteen through 21 Paul prays for to God to provide various forms of benefits to the, to the Ephesians. Uh, that, that God can strengthen our innermost being through His Spirit, giving that spiritual strength and, uh, to overcome. That God, in fact, the, the wonderful message of this prayer uh, is... Is it in its conclusion and what Paul has to say about what God is able to do? So in Ephesians 3, 4 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So God is able to do even more than we're able to ask or think. And that God wants to. So how does God comfort us? How does God strengthen us? How does God encourage us spiritually? Those are things known to him and something that we're supposed to put our trust in. It may not be for us to know but we must trust in it and must be thankful for the fact that grace is not this one-time dispensation, but is how God continually approaches His people. He approaches them with grace and through grace. And that is why, it, since God is a gracious God, 
If we're going to be the people of God, we need to be a gracious people. A people marked and filled by grace. Because God's gifts of grace are not designed to turn us into entitled, spoiled children. Instead, they are to inspire us to be thankful, faithful Christians full of grace. Stephen, in Acts 6-8, is called full of grace in the Holy Spirit. He was given gifts by God. And he used them to serve God's people. He's a wonderful model of grace. And so to receive grace should lead us to become people of grace. And that should define our disposition and conduct according to grace. I mean, how many questions do we have in our lives about how we're supposed to live? If you go to a bookstore, you look on Amazon, you see all sorts of books about how to live with children or parents, husbands or wives, people at work. How do we approach, live with people in, in our world? How do we work with one another in churches? And interestingly, there's this message that we see in the New Testament, which is, as God has been gracious to you, show grace to others. Allow all of your relationships to be defined by grace as God has defined His relationship with you by His grace. To not give what is deserved, perhaps, to be merciful at times, but to give what is not deserved. So are there going to be times in relationships where people treat you poorly? Sure. Why the golden rule? Because that's the gracious response. The gracious response is to say, I may have the right to treat you in a certain way that you may not like, but I'm going to absorb the offense, and I'm going to treat you kindly even though you have not treated me kindly. I am going to be patient even though you are not being patient. I am going to show you love even though you're not showing me love. I'm going to maintain control even though you are out of control. On and on and on it goes. It looks very much like that for the Spirit manifest in Galatians 5, 22-24, absolutely. But the decision to do that is the decision to be gracious. To be full of grace. Now, does that mean everything's going to go well for us? No. After all, in 1 Peter 2, 18-25, Peter talks about how Jesus suffered for doing good and for being gracious. In fact, the display of God's grace in Christ is, is His suffering. But should that stop us? Just because people start doing bad things to us when we're nice to them, should we stop being nice to them or being kind of? No. We are to do it anyway. Even if we get abused or suffer for it, we should do it anyway. Because that's the gracious way. The way that God has provided for us in Christ. So if God's grace is going to have any value in our lives, it's not something we can just accept as true. Instead, if God's grace is going to have value in our lives, we need to allow ourselves to trust it trust in God and allow that grace to transform us. Because God's grace is not designed to be a relic of the past. That he is continually giving grace to his people. And that his people are expected to take that grace to and use it to glorify his purposes. Glorify his name and advance his purposes by serving others. By being strengthened to accomplish the work that God has given them to do. So God's grace in Christ is not just some matter of doctrine to uphold or to dispute about which to dispute. It's to inform our understanding of who we are, who God is, how we relate to Him, and how we relate to one another. It's supposed to be a catalyst to thanksgiving to God, humility before God, dependence on God, and to be gracious toward one another. And therefore, let us prove thankful 
that God has displayed grace in Christ, and to serve Him as a servant full of grace. We're so glad that, again, you've spent this time with us. We hope that you've been strengthened and encouraged by this. If there's any way we can be of any kind of encouragement to you, maybe you want to talk more about grace. Maybe you want to uh, receive God's grace uh, in your life, to be thankful for it and to put your trust in God. Maybe you have a prayer request. Maybe you just need to talk about something. Let me know. Please contact me through my website, theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Or also, you can find out more about the Venture to Christ online if you're interested at VentureToChrist.org. We're also on social media on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Twitter, Meetup, and YouTube, Venice Church or Venice Church of Christ. We again thank you. Have a great day.